Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Being diagnosed with cancer aged just 25 changed the course of Lizzie Carr's life, ditching her corporate career to become an adventurer, taking on challenge after challenge on her paddleboard to battle plastic pollution worldwide. She's the first person in history to solo paddleboard the length of England, the first woman to solo paddleboard the English Channel, and in 2018 paddleboarded the whole of the Hudson River from Albany to New York City. Her app, Plastic Patrol, already has over 50,000 entries from people logging plastic pollution all over the world with an inspirational story of what we can do if we put our minds to it. It's Lizzie Carr. I went to New York to paddle the Hudson really so that I could start to um, take the Plastic Patrol campaign that I'd launched over to America, one of the world's biggest consumers of single-use plastics. And I hadn't actually been to New York before. I hadn't recce it and I arrived and it was just this huge beast of a river. Um, I couldn't really imagine what it would have been like until I saw it. And what, what was it like? What was the journey like? Probably of the, t- the challenges that I've done, I would say it was probably the toughest one. Mostly because there was the um, Hurricane Florence coming into the East Coast as I'd started the journey. So it was throwing up really unpredictable weather. And because of that, I just didn't know when it was sort of safe and comfortable to be out on the water. And a thunderstorm would be predicted at, say, four o'clock. So I think, right, get off the water a couple of hours before that. And then it would just kind of come in a few hours early. And I wasn't off the water and it was hard to find somewhere to get off quickly. The currents, tides, they are working against each other all the time it's very rare that you'll kind of get them working in sync and the Hudson is really well known for that and then you've got obviously commercial boat traffic and these sort of larger vessels and it's not just about being in their way and being in the shipping lanes and having to sort of move away from them because they have right of way on the water it's also about um, the wake that they leave behind and trying to sort of paddle along against these like really big waves that they've created as they go past you. So just there's so many different variables to consider, especially when you're on your own and you have to rely completely on yourself. Well, I was going to say, are you on your own or is it like when you cross the channel and you've got like a support boat with you? No, I was I was on my own for this one. I had a support vehicle on land, but... I think I was very aware that they couldn't, if anything happened, no one could do anything. You know, they're, they're on land there just to sort of, for reassurance. And there was a film film crew on there so they could sort of come and, and document the journey. But 
there were times where they were maybe you know four or five miles from me because there wasn't anywhere to access the water from land for that length of time so yeah it was quite intimidating and I felt quite vulnerable at most points throughout that journey. Rightly so you are very vulnerable you're out there on your own paddling in a great big dirty river a lot, a lot bigger than you thought it was you could easily fall off and die and nobody would know about it. I'd hope not die <laughs> I think but I think I'd be all right like if you fall in you know I had a leash attached to me so I'm always close to the board which is effectively your biggest buoyancy aid and I was wearing a buoyancy aid so I had all like the safety precautions I had a um, a very high frequency radio so I could contact the coast guard if I needed to so I could speak to them sort of almost immediately and then I had the guys on the land so I did everything I could to avoid that but I think with anything there's always risk right were you scared at any point I was mostly scared but somebody had said to me a few days ago and I think this is really true if you're doing a challenge like that and you're not hating it 95% of the time it's not a challenge it's a holiday and I thought that's perfectly sums up how it felt because it definitely wasn't a holiday (laughs) describe to me the worst moment on the trip probably when a ripple like a, a, a bolt of thunder sounded like the rain clouds came in quite quickly and I heard the thunder around me and I obviously knew that lightning was going to follow really quickly but I also knew that I couldn't get off the water anytime soon and I'm there with a carbon fibre paddle in my hand really exposed just quite panicky desperately trying to get off I think as, as a paddle boarder as anyone on the water you know as soon as you know there's going to be thunderstorms, you want to get out and you want to get out quickly. And it was that sort of knowing that I couldn't, I had to just find somewhere to to remove myself. And did you find somewhere? I did eventually. I hid under a bridge for a while just so I wasn't the highest point on the water. And then it was just sort of about deciding when to make my lucky break to reach the next point of land. And that's where it's helpful having the crew on the ground because they could tell me, based on where I was, where that nearest point would be. And it was about a 10-minute paddle, so it's quite, quite hairy. And what are you passing? What are you seeing on the riverbanks? Mostly just dense woodland. Um, So there's nowhere sort of a shoreline for you to get off. It's just because this was further upstream as I started in Albany up in New York State. So this is before you really get down to the city where there's quite a lot of piers and that kind of thing. So it was just a lot of dense woodland, a lot of shrubbery and then just kind of sheer drops like rocks into the water. What's it like paddling into New York City? That must have been incredible. It really was. It was the end of one day. Uh, I think maybe about day five, that I got my first glimpse of the sort of the skyline, the New York skyline. You could see all the lights and it was nightfall was just coming in. So you could see sort of the buildings lit up. And I was just sort of paddling, keeping my head down. And I was just sort of really concentrating on what I was doing. And at one point I looked up and I saw it. And that was a real sort of moment for me because I'm nearly there. I've nearly done it. I wasn't nearly there. It was still miles away, but it, it was it was a good sign. Was there anyone waiting to greet you? Did you have like a welcome committee? Yeah, on the last day when I finished, I was organising beach cleans or um, foreshore cleanups along the way. So on the last day when I finished the challenge, I had one there. So I had a whole sort of group of individuals that had come along for the cleanup, and I had like paddle boards and canoes set up so that as soon as I finished we could go and do a beach clean on the on the towpath. And this is the reason you're doing it you better tell us from the beginning what what is the reason you were undertaking this challenge and the other challenges you've been taking? All of my adventures really they're designed with an environmental purpose so I, I call it adventure with purpose so I'll paddle board and 
within that journey I'll do a lot of um, citizen science activity so I did a bit of microplastic sampling on the river I had a, a, a what's called a smart fin a detachable fin that you put on your board that allows you to measure water temperature and the motion characteristics in water um, and I also did some beach cleans along the way and logged everything in the app the plastic patrol app that I developed so we could start seeing the types of plastics the location of them and ultimately the brands that we're finding time and time again along these stretches of water so everything I was doing along that journey every bit of information that I could gather I was collecting. And what brands are you finding? Is there a predominant few brands? Not necessarily brands that you could pinpoint but types of plastics yes yeah. so a lot of bottles and wrappers and bags those are like the three big sort of offenders that you find along the waterways and it's interesting because I was working with a couple of charities and organisations that look after the Hudson in New York and feeding a lot of my data into their research and we were comparing what I find on the UK waterways when I'm doing my sort of activity over here and what I'm finding over there and it all correlates it's the same stuff over and over again. Are we just as bad as America? I think we're quite progressive compared to America we've got we've introduced a lot of legislation and pledges and businesses are really sort of getting on board and the whole idea of being more sustainable and environmental is snowballing whereas I think in America they're maybe about two years behind us they're just kind of that awakening is just happening it's an exciting time to be out there but you're very aware that there's just not that general awareness that there is here like it's quite mainstream now I would say in the UK what is the situation with plastics? I saw you were mentioned in a very good friend of mine, Lucy Siegel. You were mentioned in her, in her book, Turning the Tide on Plastic, a brilliant book. And I'd recommend everyone read it to learn what we can do to help fight the uh, plastic. And Lucy was one of our first ever guests on the podcast. So that was a nice little turn of events. And I saw your name and then I knew I was going to interview you. And what what is the situation with plastic at the moment? Where are we? We hear of plastic floating football fields in the middle of the Caribbean and the oceans. What's the situation? I think that's, that's a big question. I think in the UK, I've certainly felt that after the, over the last four or five years since I've been campaigning, there's been a real shift in the general mindset around it. There's much more awareness, there's much more education and there's much more accountability, not just from brands, but also from government. Like People are sort of stepping up a lot more now. I think we have a long way to go, but you know, images of whales washed up on beaches in Indonesia with you know plastic filling their stomachs and I think there was a recent European study on humans and every single person within that study had they found them to have microplastic in their feces I think as we're learning more and more about what this is doing and the impact it's having on the environment and ourselves I think people are becoming more attuned to the fact that we as individuals need to make a lot of changes too. It's terrifying isn't it when you really look into it and you know I just think about you know maybe 30 years ago when I was a young child my nan would be horrified and we very quickly went from that generation and even my parents generation that were washing things out and reusing them to everything being disposable every single thing you know from bottles to water bottles to razors to shampoo all the things we go through it's absolutely terrifying that everywhere in the world everyone's doing that you're right it is a really scary thought and I think one of the main things we need to do as a sort of collective society not just in the UK but all over the world is just take a step back just think a little bit more about how we're consuming and what that means and what that looks like and I mean, wouldn't it be lovely to go back to a time where sort of craftsmanship and the idea of having a product to, that would last you a long time is, is really valued and appreciated? And I do think that that shift is happening. 
but it takes time. I want to ask how you got onto this journey, the metaphorical journey rather than the literal one. We'll do a lot more literal ones as well. But you say in your book, Paddling Britain, you say that you were sitting, you literally had an epiphany. You were sitting in an office job. You've never, you'd never paddled before. And you suddenly had this epiphany and you literally left your job and went off to save the world from plastic, as it were. Rewind from there, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2013 and that was the catalyst really to everything. I'd sort of made this promise to myself when I was ill that, you know, if I got better, I would live this sort of really meaningful life and make the most of this second chance. Um, But actually what I did was just go back to work. I think at the time, once I'd got the all clear and I'd gone into remission, I really craved like stability and routine and familiarity, all the things that before my diagnosis, I was sort of resisting. But then after about a year, I, I got probably survivor's guilt. I just felt really bad and I would do that. I'd get on the train in the morning and I'd go into the office and I'd look around and I'd just think, what are you doing? And I, it actually was making me really anxious because I felt so guilty. And then one day I just thought, I, I cannot do this anymore. I, can't, I feel like I'm just living a lie. I think I changed so much through that process of the cancer diagnosis as a person that I just couldn't identify with this really ambitious corporate individual that I was before that. It was, it was a quite a difficult time, actually. And what made you choose plastic? I was paddleboarding as a way of getting fit after the, my illness. It was really just about sort of rebuilding my strength in a low-impact way. And it was because because of paddleboarding that I even connected with plastic in the environment. I was on the canals in London where I live, sort of going up and down and just seeing how bad this problem was. And this was a few years ago before it's the issue that it's become now. And I remember thinking then, why is no one talking about this? Why are brands not being accountable for what's what I'm finding? Why is government not legislating anything? Why is this not in the public domain because I can see how bad it is and that's really where I suppose everything started from it was me thinking about how I could start drawing attention to this issue but it's interesting because it was by quitting my job and spending more time on the water to work out what I would do next that I started to kind of get really I suppose connected to the issue it's it's funny how things work out isn't it what what cancer did you have thyroid because you you don't know what's going to happen how old was I I was 25 that's a really shocking thing to happen to you. Did you make the connection, and I'm not, not actually sure there is a connection, so I'm making this up here. Did you make a connection between plastics in terms of what we're consuming and health? At the time, no, not really. That's something that I've learned on my own journey. It was very much about aesthetically what was there. And I think the biggest thing for me was how I could see it was impacting the wildlife. Like I'd paddled past birds' nests and I'd see them made up almost entirely of plastic. You'd see swans sort of chewing at plastic wrappers. So that that was a massive motivator for me back then. But as I've sort of learned more and understood more, and, and books like Lucy's where you just, you know, it's, it's brilliant and you're so educated on it, you then start to uncover and unravel this whole other world and all these other problems that it starts to bring. It's interesting that you're seeing those birds' nests and swans chewing on plastic because we see those on social media. They're being shared quite a lot now, but you don't know how common it is. You don't know if people are just sharing it because it's common, but it's interesting that there you are paddling in London and actually seeing this in action. You could go for a walk on the canals in London and you would see two or three birds' nests now made up in that way like that is not an uncommon sight it was a shocking sight back then because I'd only just started using the canals and I'd only just started paddleboarding and when you're on the water you're seeing it from a very different perspective 
to when you're just walking along the towpath and that for me is why paddleboarding is such a great way to get people really thinking about the issue because all of a sudden you're in it you're part of it you're not just sort of a, an observer on the side I know you've done a lot of other journeys talking about the sort of more travelly side of it now on the paddleboard what what journeys have you done my first major journey challenge was paddleboarding the length of England so from Godalming in Surrey which is the most southerly point of the connected waterways network in the UK to Kendal just short of Kendal in the Lake District and you can actually complete that journey on a paddleboard almost in one single route there's locks that you have to pass 193 of those that you have to portage through but it is a connected so what's portage i know what locks are but portage um, is that just is... go round oh, right, right. basically yeah just go round is that get um, out and go round yeah so That's all a of great the... word portage <laughs> learn something new it's tricky because you've got all your kit on your board so i had my tent my stove my clothes everything was on my board so every time you're portaging and going round, you're sort of having to take all of this kit off and it's quite heavy and really cumbersome you lift your board out the water and then walk it round, put it back in and do it again do it again that was probably one of the most tiring aspects of it but on that first journey i suppose that's where everything really started because I was using the hashtag plastic patrol really as a way of just logging and documenting all of the plastic I was finding. So I was using that journey to basically draw attention to the fact that all of this stuff is being found on our inland waterways. Actually, it's, it's where it's all starting. By the time it reaches our oceans, it's almost too late. We need to start addressing it from the source. So I was collecting a lot of these samples along my way and it was particularly interesting what I was finding and that now has evolved into the Plastic Patrol app and this sort of global movement where people are contributing their own findings within that from all over the world. We've had about 50,000 uploads now in 26 countries globally of people showing the types of plastics that they're finding in their towns and cities and whatever. Have you got people from quite far-flung countries? all over the world so a lot across Europe and then we've had some from Russia, Cambodia, Kazakhstan, where else Croatia, a couple from Africa so yeah just all over the world people contributing. How are they finding you that's wonderful. I have no idea hopefully they're just very compelled by the issue and then sort of as they're researching it they're hearing about us. Did you cross the channel? Mm. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I was just looking at my list there. You crossed the channel on a paddleboard. How was that? That was also an adventure. I waited about three weeks for a weather window. It was May 2017 that I did it and we just couldn't get a clear day, a clear run of a day where everything was sort of working in our favour. The winds were down, the tides were right. It was quite surreal starting in one country and ending your day in another one. And it was only sort of on my way back. I was like, I'm on my way home from France and I've just come here on a paddleboard. <laughs> it was quite weird. It must have been terrifying. The shipping channels are actually quite significant, aren't they, so I hear? Yeah, they really are. And those, those ships are huge. I suppose the thing with the English Channel is that the French authorities enforced a law a couple of years ago that human-powered crafts were not allowed to paddle through their shipping lanes like there was just no permission granted for it so if I wanted to cross their section of the shipping lane I had to have a support boat with me and I had to get in that support boat and go on in that and then make up the distance on the other side three or four miles so I did the English half of the shipping lanes and then as soon as I got into French waters I wasn't allowed in them and they knew straight away as soon as I crossed into French waters they were on that radio who's with the paddle border <laughs> how are they watching that's I really don't spooky know. it's quite surreal isn't it they knew I was out there 
It's a bit and Truman I, Show. Did you ever see the Truman Show? Yeah. yeah. So I, I had to get on the boat, cross their shipping lanes and get back on the water and make up the distance. What was the most standout moment from crossing the English Channel? Do you know, it was right at the beginning, as I left, I had this really gentle tailwind pushing me along and i just come out of Rye Harbour and these porpoises just jumping out of the water around me and it was almost quite sort of symbolic for me. It was like, you're going to be okay, they're with you. Quite a spiritual moment. It, it was. Like. And what was the most, the scariest moment on that trip? There wasn't a moment that I really sort of feared for my life or anything. I wouldn't necessarily say scary, but there was a moment, surprisingly, I actually, I've never had this before. I got seasick. I've never paddled where I can't see land really before. And it's really counterintuitive to being a paddleboarder. Like the golden rule is if you can't see land, you're too far out, you need to be going back. So I had nowhere to really sort of benchmark myself or nowhere to focus on it was like blue on the water blue around me and so I just I couldn't really get my bearings and I think it made me quite ill so I wouldn't say it was scary but I remember at one time thinking I can't do this because I feel like I'm just going to be sick like it was that bad and then I loosened my buoyancy aid a bit and I felt a bit better and I just sort of got my head down and carried on but it was funny because I told the crew to all take sickness tablets as I don't want anyone getting ill. (laughs) Did they have any spare left for you? Oh, it was no. too late by that point. <laughs> and so you arrived in France. What was that like? I don't know what it is with me and thunderstorms when I paddle, but another thunderstorm had set in and it was torrential rain. I mean, howling out there. And it, uh, the tide had turned because it had taken me just over seven hours. So that window of like good tide pushing me had, had gone against me. It was quite dramatic. It was like, right, get in, the, get in the boat. We've got to go. We need to get off. So there wasn't really a moment to sort of absorb it. Just up and left I would have been tempted to stay the night have some wine you right know, nice cheese little, and wine yeah, cheese and wine you deserved it after all that you literally had to get back in the boat and go back to England yeah that's not as good as it could have been no I agree so what other paddleboarding journeys have you done a lot around the UK which is really what inspired the book that I wrote when I am training I try as much as I can to sort of use that as a time to explore as well the Isles are silly I think I have a particular affection for my dad lives over there and it was actually the first place I took up paddleboarding after my illness I'd gone to stay with him just for a couple of weeks to sort of recover and saw somebody out doing there doing it and I thought that looks really relaxing I really want to give that a go so I definitely hold a special place in my heart for paddleboarding around the Sillies and it is just so beautiful like it's almost been in the Caribbean the waters are crystal clear there's the beaches are sandy and white it's stunning there, there are incredibly beautiful beaches like that around the UK and, and I think the only thing that lets it down which actually was really good this summer is the weather isn't it it's mm. so unpredictable it's true, although I quite like autumnal paddleboarding. I really enjoy the fact that there's not many people around and you get that magic hour, dusk, early evening, where the sun's starting to set and everything's sort of calmed down a bit and everyone's gone home to watch TV and sort of wrap up warm. And if you're wrapped up warm enough on the water, I think there's no better time to be out there. You know, the changing colours of the trees and the the smell in the air it's just like crisp feeling I love it I'm the same in terms of being out and walking and, and photographing things but um, I've never tried paddleboarding and I really 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 want to so you've inspired me have you travelled widely before Plastic Patrol was the main thing on your mind? Yeah when I just turned 25 so I only was diagnosed with cancer about two months after I'd come back from like a sabbatical I'd travelled through Africa I'd gone over to Australia and New Zealand and I actually then finished off doing the Trans-Siberian Railway, which was just 
incredible. The whole adventure was incredible. So I had travelled quite a lot then and that sort of sparked a real love of travel in me and I've continued to do that ever since. But I suppose one thing I've always tried to take with me when I travel is the idea of sort of not necessarily giving something back when you're there, but if if you are travelling somewhere, we're sort of sharing the reality of that place. And I think with social media these days, it's really easy to kind of believe one reality that doesn't actually exist and everyone's trying to get this like perfect shot but what we should be doing is showing what it actually looks like and using travel to be able to talk about humanitarian environmental ecological issues that affect these places and that's what in a lot of ways plastic patrol is about is kind of going to these countries and and using say the app for example as a way of collecting citizen science so you're not just kind of going somewhere and ignoring maybe some of the problems that it has but you're using your time there to contribute really meaningful information. Wow so after that incredible journey you came back and was were diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. That must yeah. have been so shocking. I had no idea it comp- like completely blindsided me. I look back now and I can almost see some of the signs when I was away like I was napping quite a lot and I don't really nap I just I'm quite sort of a, a active person and I remember going on a hike in Vietnam to um sort of these these paddy fields these rice fields and I was with sort of two or three other people and I would have I thought I was relatively fit and I just couldn't keep up and I couldn't understand why I couldn't keep up and I went and sat at the base of this waterfall with my feet dipped in this icy cold water and I just fell asleep because I was so hot and so tired and it didn't really click at the time, but I look back now and I can just recognise all these moments where I was obviously just quite ill and hadn't realised, just sort of pushing myself on. What other standout moments do you have from that trip? Relating to my illness or just happy moments? Oh, I don't know. Give us a happy moment. So many. Just Africa for me. Someone said before I left, Africa will steal your heart. And I remember thinking, a bit cliche, but... I'll see what happens and it really did and I totally got it and I'd go back there in a heartbeat it's the first time I saw you know any of the big five and it just was just an incredible place and it really I suppose that started a lot of interest in sort of conservation for me and sort of got me really aware of that side of things and that's the amazing thing about travels in the in the right way it can open your eyes to so much. I started in Kenya and then I traveled through Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia Namibia then down to South Africa so just overlanded basically through sub-Saharan Africa. And this is all in one trip after the Trans-Siberian so talk me through it. the Trans-Siberian. So you you left from England. Yeah and I went to Kenya and then travelled overland from Kenya down to Cape Town and I did that over about seven or eight weeks which was just brilliant is the only way I can describe that and very eye-opening you know my very first time in Africa just everything is exciting and your senses are just on overdrive Um, and then I went across to uh, New Zealand and I spent a few weeks on the South Island there and then I crossed to Australia which I didn't really enjoy that much so I didn't spend much time there. Interesting why didn't you enjoy it? I just felt that I've, I really wanted something different like sort of experiencing different culture and it just felt there was just a lot of of English people there really so I just I left for Singapore Malaysia Thailand I just overlanded I love getting trains I love traveling by land um, and just seeing things from the ground I think you can miss so much if you're flying and it's not very good for the environment so I did I traveled completely by land from southern Malaysia right up to Beijing where I started the Trans-Siberian Railway through Mongolia and then 
across uh, Russia. I've always wanted to do the Trans-Siberian Railway. What was it like? Do you know what? It's great, but you can't, you miss a lot of the views because the train's still travelling and you're sleeping and it's dark. So you only have like a few hours of daylight. It, re- it is an amazing adventure and you're sort of like in the deepest, darkest parts of Siberia as you're travelling through. But it's almost a bit too quick. What are your future plans? You've got any journeys planned or campaigning? Future plans really just focusing on Plastic Patrol. So that's now a charity and I've got an amazing team of, small team, but amazing team of volunteers that help with that. Everything I've done has always been with Plastic Patrol at its heart. So I really want to focus more on evolving that and just getting more and more people involved in what I'm doing. So I'll do my sort of roadshow again next year where I travel around the UK with paddle boards and invite people out to join me. And it's all completely free. Like people don't pay to do it. Their payment, which I call their nature tax, is literally picking anything that they find in the waterways when they're paddle boarding and logging it in the app so that we're collecting this really valuable data. What can we do to help? Well, one, logging data in the app so any plastic that you find where it shouldn't be whether you can collect it or whether you just find it like a like fly tipping that's just too big for you to pick up but is really good evidence for us that's a really sort of simple easy thing that people can do all over the world you know when you're on holiday for example obviously do a beach clean that would be nice but just photographing and logging this stuff is really useful we're at a point now i think where Everyone is very aware that we should be trying to use reusable water bottles, canvas bags, saying no to straws and that kind of thing. But I think more generally, it's really just about consuming less plastic. It's a very good presenting issue for much bigger environmental problems. And I worry that we're demonising plastic and using other materials, single-use materials in replacement of it, but that's not necessarily the solution. So I think as we're sort of navigating how we're going to sort of work through this plastic issue, yes, we need to reduce our consumption of it, but actually really learning and and teaching ourselves a bit more about what we should be swapping it out with and how we should be consuming. So consume less plastic overall. I mean, we can recycle all we like, but not all of it is recyclable, you know, and that also uses a lot of resources in many ways, doesn't it? I know this because I've read Lucy's book and she's taught me a lot over the years, but also the book is very useful. I know you said with Plastic Patrol, you've got people from all over the world, but you do see these images again on social media of rivers that are flowing full of plastic and riverbanks that are full of plastic. Are people in developing countries who, you know, probably have more things on their minds than we do, are they aware? Is the awareness spreading? I know the awareness is is kind of here now in the UK and like you said, probably in the States, but what about the rest of the world? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I imagine there probably is less awareness, but I don't necessarily think it's always down to the individual's in those countries it's about waste management and infrastructure and a good example of that is us shifting our recycling over to China which has now closed its doors on us and now that sort of looking at alternatives and sending it to countries like Malaysia they just just, they do not have the infrastructure there for their own waste as we've seen in these countries so us then shipping ours over is just adding to the problem so I think globally you can't tackle this problem with like there's no silver sort of bullet for it there's no secret answer it's about addressing each country sort of at a local level and understanding the challenges within that particular area and certainly in some of them you know their waste management compared to the UK and we're certainly not perfect over here does need to be addressed quite urgently but you're right there are instances where poverty-stricken countries there isn't really an alternative and that does need to be looked at and I don't know what the solution is for it but I am very aware of it. 
like you said, I guess it have to, has to come from the top. I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music, because I think that for a lot of people, music and travel go hand in hand. You're looking quite alarmed. Do you listen to music when you're paddleboarding? Well, I guess you need your wits about you, do you? Yeah, sometimes. If I can relax, I really enjoy listening to music. Other times, actually, just the song of the paddle, I quite enjoy that as well. But go on. It, might, it must be quite hypnotic, uh, the, the song of the paddle. Yeah. I've never heard of the song of the paddle, but that's a very good. I'm assuming it's not like some hip hop artist I don't know. Depends how I'm paddling. (laughs) So if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a place and time of travel, what would that one song be? I know what it is. I think it's called Sleep on the Floor by the Lumineers. And it reminds me of being in India, sat on a train, just travelling through sort of like, I think it was 24 hours on a train journey there and listening to that song and just feeling really at peace with my environment, sort of looking out the window at the world going by, surrounded by this just amazing culture. And I actually, every time I go on an adventure or I travel, I play that song at the start of my journey so that it kind of cements that next experience in my mind. So every time I hear that song, it's just kind of a a, a montage of all my amazing adventures that kind of spring into my head. Thank you so much, Lizzie. You're an inspiration to us all. And I know I personally will take on your message about plastic when traveling, both at home and away. Next week, we have food critic and television star Giles Corrin. And do look out for our Christmas special, Arriving Imminently. Thank you so much for listening.